0: Let's just say we're four years old and somebody pushes us on the playground. You go to sleep full with this. And then at night, your brain catalogs and stores and and partitions and makes sense of the experience. And by the time you wake up the next day, the brain has got a really good proposal for you on how to not have that same horrible experience again.
1: Using the end of the night to help a child unwind, make sense of the day, and prepare for what's to come tomorrow can be a really valuable tool that allows parents and children to feel connected and for a child's brain and body to shift into a state of rest during those last few minutes of the day. My guest today really understands just how impactful this time can be. Andrew Newman is a children's book author who has crafted a series of books called Conscious Stories. And these books are designed specifically for children and parents to come together in this really special way that promotes deeper bonding, greater social and emotional learning, and it gives parents these really kind of creative and special tools to make their child's bedtime ritual meditative and sacred. Helping our children to feel safe and connected to us just before it's time for them to drift off into sleep can have a huge impact on their ability to successfully fall asleep and stay asleep Mm -hmm. and impacts their overall mental well-being. If you've been listening to this podcast, you have probably heard me say over and over how important self-care is for parents. And I don't mean spa days and weekend getaways, though if you can squeeze that in, more power to you. I mean some very basic and often overlooked things that can have a huge impact on the way we feel about ourselves and the amount of patience and bandwidth we have when parenting our children. Getting enough sleep, staying hydrated and getting proper nutrition all go a really long way in filling our cups and preventing some of the symptoms of burnout. And that is why I was so excited that Sakara is offering securely attached listeners 20% off their meal program or functional wellness products with code Dr. Sarah Sakara for first-time customers. Sakara is a meal delivery service, but not one of those where you have to do the cooking. No, they send you high quality, clean, individually packaged meals backed by cutting edge nutrition science and traditional healing wisdom to give your body what it needs to thrive. So you'll be removing an item off your to-do list, plus fueling your body with 100% organic vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and fiber-packed meals that will give you more energy and help you feel your best, exactly what your body needs to parent most effectively. So if you're sick of your dinners consisting only of discarded crust or a few bites of leftover mac and cheese, check out Sakara and see if one of their nutrition programs feels like a good fit for you. And don't forget to use code Dr. Sarah Sakara for first-time customers to receive 20% off. That's D-R-S-A-R-A-H-S-A-K-A-R-A. Dr. Sarah Sakara. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Brenn a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy-to-understand and actionable parenting insights, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi. So, Andrew, welcome so much to the Securely Attached podcast.
0: Yeah, it's such a pleasure to be with you.
1: I'm so happy that you're here. So, you are a very prolific children's book author. You have 23 <laughs> books under your belt?
0: Yeah. Can't stop, can't stop it now once it's started. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how did you like where did this come from? How, what how did you get into writing these books and and how did you like what's your background? You know that informed these books.
0: Yeah, well, let me let me you know as a storyteller, let me let me weave a little story. Um, you know, once upon a time, <laughs> way back when, there was a little boy who grew up in South Africa. You know, and that was the landscape that I grew up in was apartheid South Africa. It was um, all boys education. It was church based. It was it it was. Before the terms um, emotional intelligence even existed, and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and a lot of that, a lot of that changed for me in my in my in my early thirties, and Mm -hmm. that's when I got into my own personal development work. Like many of us, I came through the door of crisis, and uh, there were lots of fires under my feet, and I had to go and stomp them all out, and then try and try and work out who I was in the world and, and where I wanted to go. Um, and, and I entered the world of, of, of personal development through uh, healing schools, which uh, particularly one training that was uh, I've done seven years and it was really focused on developmental psychology. It was like the first six years of the life, what is it that's happening there? How are our, our, our beliefs formed uh, and, and, and how do we see the world? Because of those experiences, and, mm-hmm. and and I had to unravel South Africa, I had to unravel my childhood. I had to go back and do the do the gritty work of of looking at that. And in the process, I was surrounded by other people who were doing the same thing. i was I was um, helping clients do the same thing, and I was like seeing these common themes come up to the surface. And it didn't make it didn't make sense for me we'll touch on some of those, but it didn't make sense for me that uh, we were all resolving our our childhood issues. I was like, why don't we just do a better job at the first six years of life (laughs) and, and then, and then save on therapy bills later, if we invest early. Uh, And so the stories started to come out as little ways that I could weave uh, what I had learned both about the the pain points and the common struggles that we had and the solutions. So now we've got worlds through stories where heroic characters have heartfelt victories and the the kids who are reading it can learn from it and the parents who are reading it can remember and uh, Mm -hmm. we've got a a joint learning experience that's happening just in the last 20 minutes of the day.
1: Yeah. I love that and I imagine in like, using storytelling using books using that connected time with your kid when you're reading together like that is a time when most parent child dyads have pretty relaxed nervous systems so it's exactly. a great time yeah. to be downloading this information uh, as a team
0: yeah yeah absolutely there's something that happens when when we go from like a front to front engagement to a side by side engagement um, you know all of the rank of being a parent and you know brush your teeth put your pajamas on you know don't do that um, all of that changes you know and now now there's a book in front of both of you uh, and you can enter that world together and you go on the adventure that the the author created for you and the illustrator and you you enter that world and uh, I mean that it's interesting how much kids will open up at that at that time, and they start chatting away about their day, and it's like you've asked them a couple of times, they've said nothing. <laughs> you know, yeah. if they were at play school and they came home, and you're trying to you're trying to connect and maybe find out a little bit of what their day was, and it's like all of a sudden there they are. You're trying to put them to sleep, and they just start opening up and <laughs> they start chatting away. And uh, you know, the second parenting dilemma: you know, do we do we follow the story or do we? Or or do we follow our agenda to put them to sleep, or do we follow the child who's opening and yeah. making themselves available?
1: Yeah, um, it is a dilemma because parents are tired at the end of the day, and yeah. that's a very useful stall tactic for kids. And also, it is a legitimate invitation to connect yes. on the part of the child with the grown-up. I mean, it is tricky. Like when kids are in that. Really safe, really comfortable space. They're probably snuggled up with you. You know, it's really easy to open up,
0: Hmm.
1: and it is. Yeah, like I find that dilemma too. I mean, I have two, and I'm. Yeah, my kids are extra chatty at bedtime when I'm like, I'm ready to go to sleep myself. Like, can you just? (laughs) This is why couldn't we have done this an hour ago? And I had the bandwidth. Yeah, but. I think there you got to find that balance because sometimes you have to say like, Hmm, I'm going to delay bedtime. I really want to hear what you have to say right now.
0: Right. And, and, and so you have a choice each night on that. One of the things that I wanted to do when I, I was, I was thinking, how do I help parents and kids at the same time Is is, is looking at the busyness of parenting and, uh, and wanting to, to not add anything to that. And so, when we've got little ones, we have to put them to bed uh, Mm -hmm. as part of what we do. There there is a cultural thing being human that we we will always tell stories. um, And it seems that that's a time when stories are going to get told anyway. And so Mm -hmm. I was like, why don't we just make a, a small change in how that time is used with intentionality by weaving lessons into the stories, you know, things like the little brain people, giving kids language and tools to help them with what I call yucky brain moments. Right. So no, now tell, me, tell me language. about yucky
1: brain moments. Yucky, you know, it,
0: it, from a brain science perspective, it's fight, flight, and freeze. Um, mm-hmm. And, and uh, I've characterized dopamine and serotonin um, into little characters, and they go running through the through the brain, and they have a they have a moment where things start going wrong, and the panic button gets hit, and and cousin adrenaline jumps into action, um, <laughs> and he's you know he's a bit more like a, he has a security watchtower, and so he, he comes through from there, and 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 this is we 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 can see it in our kids. Uh, I learned a lot of this from Dr. Becky Bailey, whose work is called Uh consciousdiscipline.com and it's a brain state model for for kids and families and parents and education. And we're like, when the behavior in front of us is is what we might say acting out, we need to know that something's happening in the state of the brain. And that particularly if we're seeing uh, survival defensive behaviors, then the brain is running a constant question. The only thing it's asking is, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? And we can't do anything to educate the child until we address the safety. So mm-hmm. that becomes, you know, that's one version of the yucky brain moment is that kind of safety response. The other one is the, the slightly whiny version of I don't understand, me, me, yeah. and what the brain is doing at that stage is asking the question, Am I loved? 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 And again, we, we have to address that first. And, and when we can when like safety is on and we've got it, and and I'm loved is 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 clear and known, then then the front of the brain Gets it uh, becomes available, and all of that resourcing is 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 there, and we see it in um, curiosity and creativity and and natural flow of the child going out to explore their own world, uh, and you know that's a little bit deeper than the story covers. But we have we have at the back of the book what I call a brain balance barometer, mm-hmm. and and this but you, you've already met in the story um that one of the characters goes and presses the all clear reset button at the front of the brain
1: mm-hmm. now
0: wouldn't that be wonderful if we had one of those well actually we do and we just we, we can we can we can put our finger on it and we can press it and we can recognize are we feeling safe and loved are we having a yucky brain moment we we'll be frightened frightened fighting or frozen um and then are we restoring calm? And again, the learning how to restore calm is embedded in the story because Auntie Oxytocin is the hero who comes in and she has plays beautiful music. Um, and so we have sighing, breathing, and relaxing as some options. Um, and then now we're now we're in the home and we can just say, Oh, you're having a yucky brain moment. And we're like, maybe, maybe we can get a response or a laugh and it can it can break. The, that yeah. moment a little bit and we can say let's let's press the all clear reset button like the little brain people did and and we've got a we've got a family tool we've got a resource i mean you can say it to each other as parents or you can say it to parents and kids and then it won't take long before the kids are turning around and going hey mama you're having a yucky brain moment yeah. um, and and that's a great that's a great moment when that happens it's humbling mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also helpful. Um, and why not? Why don't, why don't we want their wisdom available to us when, when the moment they've got it.
1: Right. And I love that the way this book works is it how, or like all these books kind of work is like, it creates a shared language again yep. that you're introducing in these calm, connected moments when the thinking brain, the prefrontal cortex is on is creating new associations, learning new things so you've got that, like, relational safety kind of opening up access to learning in these, like, you know, bedtime story moments. Mm. But in that time, you're creating a shared language that then you can use as a parent later Absolutely. as a shorthand when the prefrontal cortex or the thinking brain isn't as accessible and you have to kind of, like, throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. And, like, sometimes you can break through, but if you have to give your child, like... 15 words to try to break through versus like a is this a yucky brain moment that's gonna click for them much more it's just more accessible it's a shared language that's creates a shorthand that you could use in the hot moments when you don't have as much language available to you because they're not going to hear it but it's interesting because i think what also happens in a book like this is obviously you're creating that shared language that the parent and child can both use together to help their communication in the hotter moments. But I think you're also painting a picture, like it's a really incredible art form to be able to tell a story that a child sees themselves in the story. And it makes intuitive sense to them what they are seeing because they recognize their experiences in the book. And simultaneously helping a parent understand their child's experience better Hmm. and create more empathy and compassion for the parent towards the child. Because you can say like, Oh, when my child is searching for silence and keeps getting thwarted and builds this frustration in their body slowly over the course of these accumulating frustrations, Mm -hmm. and then they lose it. As a parent, we often see the losing it, and usually it's triggered by something super like mundane. And we're like, why are you having this big of a reaction over this tiny little thing? When what your what sounds like your book describes is like, well, yeah, but that tiny little thing tipped them over. Right. But inside the body was this little thing plus this little thing plus this little thing plus this medium-sized thing, plus, and yeah. so it's like, oh, right. I forget my child holds all these things in their body all day because they're a little kid in a frustrating world where they do feel thwarted and frustrated a lot. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, when they lose it, it's because they're releasing all of this pent-up frustration, and I can have compassion because I I can see it. I can understand it and have empathy for it rather than just be like, why are you losing your, your mind over, like, you know, this – you know, this popsicle breaking, like it's not yeah. a big deal right. or I peeled your banana wrong. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's cause it's not really about that.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a resourcing issue. It's it, they've run out of the type of fuel that they need for that moment. And, mm-hmm. and some of the relationship with fuel is also the space that you have to put it into. And this is why you're, you're pointing out the stacking of experiences in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was looking at this. This is, this is a lot of the content of my, of my TED talk on why the last 20 minutes of the day matter. I was looking at how things stack up inside of us and how we metabolize them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and certainly um, intentionally s- sitting quietly and doing a little five-minute meditation practice is one of the ways that we can help to metabolize. Um, mm-hmm. It centers us in ourselves, and it's, it's a it's a it builds fuel so that we can we can do things. But I was I, having having spent all these years and in healing schools and looking at trauma and, and 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 not just you know looking at it from an analytical perspective, but but really having to do our own healing. Um, we you know every student had to have eighteen therapy sessions in the academic year because so much change was happening and so much was coming up. And, and nobody ever said very much about sleep and, and its role in solidifying or, um, or dissolving the experience of trauma mm-hmm. um, and the belief system. And, and it occurred to me that trauma, I would say, pretty much always happens when we're awake. If we're asleep and something traumatic happens, we wake up. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's that the awake brain gets, gets the hit and the sleep brain has to process it um, and put it somewhere. Um, And, and, and in the, in the journey Mm -hmm. of that, we're creating a strategy. So if, if, if we had a trauma today to uh, uh, let's, and let's, let's, let's say, A micro trauma. Let's just say we had a challenging moment. We're four Mm -hmm. years old, and somebody pushes us on the playground, Mm -hmm. right? For Mm -hmm. us as adults, not a big thing, but when you're four years old and you've you've only lived twelve hundred days, your 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 uh, your skills are not so available to manage this moment, and it's a confusing moment. Mm -hmm. So, so there it is. You're going to sleep. um, You go to sleep full with this. And then at night, your your brain catalogs and stores and and partitions and makes sense of the experience. Um, And by the time you wake up or when you wake up the next day, the brain has got a really good proposal for you on how to not have that same horrible experience again. Um, Here's your belief system. Here's your strategy. Um, Don't go to the playground. You know, don't go near that person. Um, Don't make friends. Whatever it is, that's a protective mechanism that that then gets its first layering in in the heart and mind of this four-year-old. And and so much life is happening as adults that we don't quite notice it. It's a really small adjustment um, that gets made. Mm -hmm. But that adjustment... Is, is self-believing. So over time, then the five-year-old thinks that thing's still going to happen and is pretty sure about it and is living that strategy. So is the six-year-old self. So is the seven-year-old self. And you're 30 down the road and you don't actually know why you don't like going on the playground um, of life. You just know mm-hmm. that you choose to stay inside. Um, but because this, because this is, again, it slips into the, into the subconscious uh, and and if that's how it all it all gets developed, and obviously the bigger the trauma, the bigger the, the the security team inside of us kicks in, and the and the stronger the defense that gets built, and the, the, the bolder the strategy um to avoid more hurt. I was like, where can we interrupt this? Where can we change the direction of this? And and could we take some of the weight off before sleep happens Mm -hmm. so that the sleep brain doesn't have to build such a strong defensive strategy um, Mm -hmm. for the kids. And I, I will say this is the world of story, right? That's a hypothesis I'm putting out here. But because partly because the brain science doesn't yet pull all of these things together and the sleep science doesn't yet pull all these things together. But it's an observational hypothesis that's informed by my own studies. And and I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'd love, you know, you know, let's do the let's do the clinical trials. Let's try to work this out somehow. Yeah. But, but we we we've already touched on the relaxation that happens in the last 20 minutes. And we've touched on how relaxation resources and fuels us and it and it it down regulates our nervous system and it allows us to um, put down burdens that we're carrying Mm
1: -hmm. and one
0: of the ways we put them down is through attached connection
1: um
0: which is which is you know your world and here's the parent and here's the story and you get to the back of the book and uh, uh the the little activity page now you've just learned what a a yucky brain moment is or you've learned what a sticky thought is from the from the hug who got stuck and right at the end there's a question going what sticky thoughts are bothering you and you just you just ask and then your kids start telling you and in the process you're helping them metabolize because yeah. they're running their experience through your energy body and system, through your, your calmness that's there, your presence that's there, is helping them metabolize these confusing things.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because what that also makes me think of is like the role of narrative work in trauma therapy, right? Because one of the things that we do in therapy that we know from research does help reduce symptoms of trauma and PTSD is making sense of a traumatic experience with like a more linear narrative because oftentimes like when we have a traumatic experience and you know whether we're talking like macro traumas or micro traumas yeah. but like we don't encode traumas in the brain like you know when you have a memory you usually can kind of like go back in your mind and kind of watch it like a movie it's linear yeah. when something's traumatic, we don't store it in the brain in that linear way. It's usually fragmented, like a smell triggers it or like it's just put, it's kind of like in little shards of glass all over. And one of the things that we do in trauma therapy is help a person tell the story of the trauma in a more coherent narrative. And in doing that, you are organizing and processing and consolidating all this sort of like these fragments into one cohesive memory and it becomes less, you know, less interruptive because you don't, you know, smell something and all of a sudden have a traumatic flashback. It's, it, you, you, it's, it, it becomes more integrated into your story. You can build out additional stories about your resilience around this thing. And so this idea that when you process something, even as small as like a sticky thought or a yucky brain moment or a scary thing that happened on the playground, that you're helping a child create that linear narrative and integrating and consolidating those those memories so that when they do go to sleep, it's not, like you said, like having to, the, the sleep brain's not having to do all of that work. You've already taken a lot of that work off of the brain, the child's brain's plate.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And And if I had my way, I would have... Um, everyone recount their day by creating a story of it Um, and and the reason for that is you're accessing the incredible fuel of creativity so I'm actually particularly in my adult work I, I work with people who are tired of trauma centered personal development and they want a creativity centered personal development focus mm-hmm. now it's important for us to do our healing and to go back and look at the wounds and we can get more of ourselves back from the places we left it and and you know where it was lost but when we, but our creativity is just right there. It's it's not as hard to get to. Um, we don't have to we don't have to wobble around as much in the quagmire of our history. Um, so I'm, I'm a big proponent of using creativity um, as a self-expression tool. One of one of the biggest patterns that I see in adults is the sense of withhold that we we we're quiet we, we, we don't fully represent ourselves we have we have great big ideas and then we we kind of hold back and we limit ourselves a little bit and and unfortunately that is modeling something to our kids and so if we can be just that little bit theatrical and just that little bit artistic and creative and hey how was your day in story what happened to you know, this is where, where Mr. Rogers would use puppets, right. And we'd be able to act it out. And, or maybe, maybe there's a a, a pseudonym for that, that your kid has, although, you know, her name is Penny, but, but she has Penelope Jane as her, her avatar um, who goes on these adventures. Um Yeah. Yeah. That, that oh, can't say enough about creativity. It's totally yeah. my job.
1: <laughs> I love it. And I, it's funny. Cause like, I often will talk to my patients and myself really like, I'm like, as adults, like, what do you do to play? And they're like, Oh, well, I play with my kids. And I'm like, but no, but what do you do to play? And they're yeah. like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, what, like, what do you do? What do you do? That's like creative and like making something or, doing something that doesn't have an agenda or an outcome or like it's just to do to be creative and it's shocking to me how many parents i work with are like i don't do that anymore
0: right Right. and and then and then their kids come in with all of this energy and it awakens something and part of what it awakens is the grief in the parent for what they've lost as they put down their own playful self. Yeah. And that's tender. Yeah. And it takes something to, to recognize that you might have that. And, and, and that, you know, that little bit of frustration you feel towards your kid can be a projective outplaying of your own, grief nine out of 10 times it's mm-hmm. it's, it's yours um and 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 this is this is what dr Shafali's has done such a great job of of bringing into awareness and in her book around the conscious parent is is this this awareness that we have to approach this from an adult first perspective um our parenting and our, and our education again um uh, Becky Bailey's work is is the same. She has she has teachers understanding that we're we're flock animals. We're like we're like birds, you know. If if one bird gets a fright over there, the whole the whole flock takes off all at once, and so that's still true in the classroom when a kid across the classroom has a challenging encounter, their brain gets triggered and goes into the survival state and they start acting out, um, you know, with, with fists and protective mechanism. The entire class's brain has to look around for the saber tooth tiger, right? Mm -hmm. Including the teacher's brain.
1: Yeah, I was just going right. to say, the teacher too. Like right. we are, and the parents, right? Like we're all parent. connected.
0: Yeah. So if we step in, in that moment, then all we've got is a room full of survival brains trying to manage a situation. Yeah. And and what uh, Becky Bailey teaches, uh, Dr. Becky Bailey, she says, first, pause. Everybody takes a pause. Breathe. And wish them well. And that action resets your brain and your nervous system and puts you into the resourced part of you that can now come and step in with the calmness and the composure and the the real knowing of how to handle the situation mm-hmm. without your own reactivity being um, added to the pot. Uh, yeah. And it's it's the simplest. The simplest exercise and the hardest thing to do. Um, but you can literally regulate a class of kids by breathing at the front. You can bring them into their own center and their own awareness just by by coming into your breath. And this is what attunement is. And as part of the attachment, um, the success, successful attachment has good attunement where kids are, are seen, heard, felt, acknowledged, feel like they belong, they feel safe and loved. And uh, we create attunement in in conscious stories through what's called the snuggle breathing meditation, which is the way that we start story time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love us to do it quickly because then you and I can yeah. drop another level into attunement even. So it's four simple breaths. Um, okay. And the first breath is I breathe for me. Just take that breath, I breathe for me. you will be surprised how many mums feel they don't deserve or can't actually just take a breath for themselves. You know, so this is the calling of spirit back, you know, particularly with the young, young infants. I breathe for me. And then I breathe for you. So that's the second breath, breathing in. Now I breathe for us. And finally, I breathe for all that surrounds us. And then we go really quiet, just organically, Mm -hmm. just happens. And I I don't want to be naive, your your kids are going to Love this on some days and rally against it on other days, yeah, um, and we have we have parents who are doing this with you know with very young, uh, very young infants. You can the attunement of the of the newborn on the mother's breast is is um, you know to if we can if we use our breath to do that, and and mm-hmm. I learned some of that. I did some work with patients in coma years ago. Um, in a hospital in South Africa and uh, it was bedside counseling for, for coma patients so you, you you enter their dream state world and the, and the way you enter is by pairing your breath with hmm. them and uh, you can try this with your partners, you can try it with their kids just w- watch their breathing you can try it with your, your pets watch their breathing and then uh, modulate yours to theirs and, and just notice how much more connected you feel to them. Yeah. I I notice I'm feel a little softer inside myself. I feel like my voice is quieter since we did that breathing. How are you feeling?
1: Yeah, no, I feel slower, you know, like Mm. a more, calm and steady pace you know Mm -hmm. like I think when I do these podcast interviews it's exciting it's frenetic it's like I want to kind of get high energy and it's there's a definite shift in that like oh I'm I'm feel like I'm feeling slowed down and grounded my mind my thoughts aren't going like you know a mile a minute which always happens when I'm interviewing someone. Cause I'm like trying to imagine like where the conversation will go and how to meet them at the next thought. And that quieted.
0: Mm-hmm. And, that and isn't so that exactly the transition from day to night,
1: mm-hmm. from
0: awake to asleep that yeah. we have to lead our kids through um, the slowing down. It's not a light switch. We don't just go click and and day has become night, and awake has become asleep. We have to recognize the transition and and um, care for it, mm-hmm.
1: and guide it a little bit through the support of our own calm nervous system. Like I always talk about co-regulation as like sharing your calm nervous system with your child, and if you want to help your child move into a state of relaxation and eventually like let go. Into sleep, which requires a tremendous amount of trust and safety. (laughs) They, you know, if you can like kind of down regulate them by guiding their nervous system with yours, it's a lot easier. And it it won't, we're not, we won't always be in sync, right? Like you said, like there'll be those nights when your kid just can't get settled. But I think it's, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, but like, I think a lot of times parents mistakenly think that co-regulation means a calm child, like effective, successful co-regulation means a regulated child. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that's a total myth about co-regulation. Co-regulation does calm a child's nervous system, but you can't see the fire that didn't get ignited you know what Mm, i mean like you don't know how much you are taking the edge off yeah you might still see a dysregulated kid who can't get settled or is pushing pushing it and really not feeling relaxed or calm but your calmness may be actually very much contributing to a greater degree of calm than what might otherwise be there if you were ramping up too
0: yeah absolutely one of the um, call it tools, therapeutic tools that, that I learned about how you meet someone where they are. Um, now, it, it, there's a couple of different situations. If they're, if they're really scared, it doesn't help for you to go to a scared place inside of you, as if that's pairing, right? You know, mm. that, that doesn't help. It's more more supportive for you to stay in your calm and your openness because the mirror neurons will do some things there. Um, but we, we worked, um, we've got one story called the home for sensitive butterflies. And, uh, and Luna is this beautiful sensitive butterfly. Now we've got a lot of sensitive kids out there. Um, and we've got, we're still really learning what we mean when we say sensitive kid. Yeah. I, think, I think it's new language and, and um, some of it's a little judgmental. Some of it's actually just the freedom of a, a child to be open and aware of what's happening in their environment. And that's a function of the world being quite a safe place relative to its history now I know there's plenty of challenge, but in the history of the world, we're doing really well at the moment, mm-hmm. and it allows consciousness to expand in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're not actually attending to, um, uh, to saber tooth tigers anymore, um, and and keeping the fire lit. We have electricity, and we we sleep warmly mostly, and 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 well, I don't know where that's going to take me, but it's like this sense that our kids and their sensitivities are probably how we would, would all be if Mm -hmm. we grew up in the environment of safety and openness, we're, we're antenna for the world. We perceive internally and externally so much of what's happening in our environment, we, we can recognize our parents' mood, the teacher's mood. Um, we, we, we learn and we know how to respond. My body's just moving in a super fluid way just as I talk about it because that, you know, that's how we are. Do we need to learn about energetic boundaries? Yes, that, that's kind of helpful. Um, but and our sensitive kids are the ones that are often experiencing an overload of information through their, their um, onboarding of, of, you know, thin boundaries and just, uh, you know, care and right. empathy for the world. Actually. They
1: have a sensitive instrument. They get a lot coming at <laughs> yeah. them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I love the word instrument because of the, from a musical perspective, there's some instruments that you really can't even pick them up without, without the the note going off um, and so for those for those kids what we can do in our system if you've got a super sensitive one is we can lift our energy right and we can uh, you know often they're flighty and they feel like they've flown off somewhere which is Luna in the story um, and we can, we can actually we can we can lift our energy And we can try and meet them where they are. If we arrive with a strongly grounded energy to a flighty butterfly, they don't actually work very well. A strong hand doesn't doesn't hold a butterfly. An open, gentle, light touch is how we hold a butterfly. And once there's connection there and attunement, and this is where we started our our, our point of of kind of co-regulating in the flight, then, then we can help them come on in down to land. Um, mm-hmm. And all of the, the, that healing response for your sensitive kids is woven into the story. So as Luna, um, uh, it, you know, she gets blown and lost and taken out into the world and it gets a little bit dramatic. And, um, and then she, she gets invited by the lavender flowers to come on in and to land because they can borrow her light and and uh, she can uh, borrow their strength. And Ooh. so she she dares to rest. She dares. It's, it's, it's existentially challenging yeah. to come on in and be present. This is an incarnatory challenge. This is like showing up into our life um, and it comes in in little layers. And there's this moment where Luna's touching the petals for the very first time and she says the the purple petals surprised her tiny toes they felt just like heaven which is her favorite place brimming with love light and safety and so then we make the descent with luna so that she can hold heaven and earth together for the first time she has this experience and it's a You know, I'm interested. I want to hear from parents. Like, how does that, you know, can you resonate with my language as you hear it? Like, um, uh, can you see it in your kids that sometimes they're they're stretched way up there and their feet aren't touching the ground? And it's like, how do we, how do we let them have the experience of, of, of both? Um, You know, the word I use is heaven to represent something high and of mystical and spiritual which our kids um really are in many in Mm -hmm. many ways um and still have their connection to earth
1: right and i think again that speaks a lot to that duality of like when you're reading a book a kid's book if you're listening to this podcast you probably read a million kids books right to your kids
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) but this idea that when a kid for me my favorite books That I read my kids are books where I I can watch my kid feel seen. They're the books that my kids ask for Mm. over and over and over again because they are in it. They see themselves in it. They identify with the story. They like what is being portrayed because they feel seen by the story. But then for me as a parent, I'm like, oh, I am gaining insight into the world of my child, into the mind of my child into the experience of my child by reading this book. And when a book does both of those things, it like, it's magic. And I think I have more empathy for my kids when I read a book that helps me understand what it's like to live their life. And so when you talk about like a butterfly that's so sensitive, that like feels like it might be flying off and floating away and getting lost Mm -hmm into the chaos of the world. And there's this experience where it actually is like, it's kind of scared to do it, but it touches down. Mm. And it has this ability of the environment around it has its ability to say it's safe enough to stay here, but you can have both, right? You Mm. can be Mm. up high and down low. You can be, you know, just on the edge of going away and still very much safely rooted here with me. Again, like as a parent who has a kid who perhaps is more flighty and more sensitive and, you know, loses it a little more, or like flies off the hand a little more, or like doesn't feel like they're, you know, here with us all the time because they're like off in their own space. And that could be frustrating as a parent when I can have empathy for my kid that has that experience mm-hmm. because I'm like, oh, I see why it is like, mm-hmm. again, this duality of like the book is for the kid and it's for the parent and therefore it's for something much bigger.
0: Right. Yeah, that's beautifully said and uh, it's just having this image of you know having the string of the kite you know just to the mm-hmm. to the big toe of that little one and so that so that you know your way to connect with them when that you know they're drifting I you, like you said something quite interesting a minute ago that I, I wanted to ask you about which was about the risk of falling asleep mm-hmm can can you say a little bit more about that? I've got a, a position on it, but I'm curious yeah. what what was coming up there for you.
1: Yeah. Well, the person who first introduced me to this idea of like falling asleep and like letting go is her name's Eileen Henry, and she's awesome. She's has a book called Compassionate Sleep Solutions, and she talks a lot about sleep. Um, but the way she describes sleep is like a a falling like a falling into sleep and sort of letting go and that trust that you will be here when i wake up and i like You were talking a little bit of what made me think of like a secure base, like when a child feels really safe, they can go and explore, they can go play, they can go take risks and then they return and fuel back up. I think sleep also requires a very sort of the sleep version of that exploration. Like I have to let go, but I can really only let go if I know I have the secure base that will be there when I return because there is that risk that if I let go, you're not actively holding me anymore mm-hmm.
0: yeah I, I I'm, I'm, thanks for sharing her her details because I definitely there's a um, a book called the girl with waterfall eyes and that falling is is really right in the heart of the story and the, you know we I remember my dad went for a small surgery years ago and he came home and he, he sort of sort of sat with us he says uh, um and then I was lying there and I was on the table and you know what happened next and and we came up with all these ideas about about the surgeon and and what it was he says no next I woke up and because there's a big gap of time right
1: Um,
0: and and I do think I do think it's existentially risky especially for those who a dream far away and similarly those sensitive kids who are are almost happier in in the world of dream than in the world of of physical form um mm-hmm. and we travel uh, our spirits or souls or whatever we we use as our, our reference we have that experience and then there's a, this this wondering of is the is there a kite string when you've gone so far you know is there a, mm-hmm. is there a way back um and, of course, sleep and, and dream space is, is the world of nightmares. And we've all had one or two of those at some stage that have rattled mm-hmm. us. And we kind of, you know, there's that brain with a strategy remembering it. Um, as you go to sleep, there's a little, there's a little flag being waved that says, oh, remember that time. Um, mm-hmm. And you better be careful out there. And it's like... <laughs> It's a subscript. You never hear it, but right. but the, but it's the brain's job just to hold it and keep it there. And um, this is this is the the combination of of using. I, I say the last twenty minutes of today actually belongs to tomorrow, um, and it is a bridge to set up the waking moment. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's really helpful to do all the things we do as adults, but really helpful for kids to to have. Like maybe maybe you've got one of those those either whiteboard or an activity chart on the wall. Tomorrow you're gonna wake you're gonna wake up. There's a little picture of you waking up, you know, and and then you're gonna get a hug, and that you know then there's a picture Mm -hmm. of mum and and kid or dad, and and then you're gonna get dressed, and then we're gonna go to school. And it's like the visual aspect of seeing that out in front and of going through that the night before. And mm-hmm. um, gives some sort of a bracketing to to that existential part that that, that the risk of sleep is is tempered by knowing um, there's a hug coming in the morning. And yeah. um, and mum, mum, and dad will will be there to to meet you, even if you don't need it. You know, the, kid, your, the parents are going, "Oh, my kid just gets up and gets going there." They like, I can't stop them. They're awake before me. It's like, yeah, but but beneath this, we're trying to settle a nerve, a long term nervous system is kind of the goal. Yeah. How do we, how do we have a, a, a self regulating? a uh, long-term nervous system with a whole bunch of tools that are that are so natural because they they learned them before they even realized they were learning them
1: yeah yeah and they learned them before perhaps there was like a critical point when we were like, "Ah aha, I'm very aware of the absence of this skill, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think sometimes we get in a little bit, kind of like what you're describing, like, oh, my kid doesn't need that because they just get up, they're fine. But sometimes I think we we don't solve for problems until they become problems. And then we're like, ah, this is all really, really messy. And then people, you know, call me <laughs> or like right. go to therapy or like, right. type. But right. like if we can be sort of prophylactic and anticipate like okay hey yeah they're okay and it's still a good time to build skills like right. it's actually the optimal time to build skills yeah. and so yeah. I like this idea I think actually that visual anchor before bed one I love the idea and I'm a big proponent of like reflecting on the day before bed, like telling the story of the day before you go to sleep. Um, Magda Gerber, who like created Rye, which is like a parenting philosophy, talks a lot about that in infancy, like right when you're, you know, before your child's even verbal and can process your language to be talking to them about the day and what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, But I love the idea of talking about what happened during the day at night, but this idea of creating actually, like, not just a story, but a visual cue of, like, especially for, like, young kids who can be very, you know, that concrete visual thing is very, very grounding and anchoring to sort of remind them, like, this is what we did today, and this is what we'll do when we wake up, and that re- that reorientation towards the future connection that will be there waiting like that's the secure base they get to go to sleep like holding that feeling in their body of like ah yeah now i can go and explore because i feel so safe
0: absolutely i I still as a grown-up wish that Somebody would come in and tell tell me how my day is gonna go like that. It'd yeah. <laughs> be like, like, oh, thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it is. It's like if you think about it, like even just like bodily or somatically, there's something really settling about knowing this is we we did this. Yeah. It's done, the day is finished, here we are. I could slow down, I can rest, and tomorrow. I can get ready for the next thing because I know what will happen. There's like, oh, there's that little like dip in the, I just did and now I rest and tomorrow I'll do again. But now we can just, we stay that resting space. I think that's probably really good for sleep from like a somatic bodily orientation. Oh, this is so interesting. I'm like super excited that we connected and I really cannot wait to read these books to my kids. Do you, how, like if parents are interested in learning more about the work you're doing or the conscious bedtime stories, where can they find you? How can they learn more about your work?
0: Yeah. So the main website is consciousstories.com. And that's got a whole lot of, um, direction and resourcing there. Um, we're just building out or rebuilding out my, my offerings to two parents directly, and mm-hmm. I, I particularly support. I'm, I, you, you can hear. I'm not the. I'm not the guy who's gonna who's, who's, who's gonna get really down into the what you say when what happens. I'm the, yeah. I'm the guy who's going to be able to say if you're the parent who's already recognised the parent first, adult first philosophy, and you're finding yourself a little activated, a little triggered, um, and you're wanting some help to unpack why that's happening and to reset your nervous system a little bit so that you can keep your center better when that's going on and be kinder uh, and gentler, then, uh, then that's the sort of thing I'd love to, to support with um, mm-hmm. in, my, in my, my coaching and healing work. Um, it's a, a great pleasure. And uh, just the other link that we're on Facebook and, and Insta um, under Conscious Bedtime Stories. Um, and uh, yeah, you'll, you'll find us out there.
1: Awesome. We'll put all the links in the show notes too. So people can find this stuff because it's so great. Thank you so much. This was great. And I'm like very, I feel so relaxed after our conversation.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I was like, like I know it's an interview, but if people fall asleep whilst I'm reading a story, then I feel that's a great success. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is bedtime stories, right? That's your jam.
0: Yeah. And and relaxation and ease and comfort in the body. Because that's where the body takes care of itself.
1: hmm Well, thanks. I'll I'm sure we'll, we'll be talking again soon.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here.
1: As you've heard, so much of this starts with the work we do on ourselves. And that's why I created a workshop aimed specifically at helping parents learn strategies for identifying what calms their unique brain and their body, and offering you the methods I teach my patients for engaging in these nervous system resets throughout the day and in the hot moments when you're really being tested. But while feeling more centered and grounded is great for us, It actually does double duty. It's one of the best tools we have for helping our child get through their big feelings and behaviors too. When we are able to remain authentically calm ourselves, not Zen monk calm, just calmer than our child, we are able to share our regulation through a process called co-regulation. So by learning tools and strategies for keeping your cool, you're actually engaging in the most effective strategy for helping your child. Simply by focusing on yourself. And you can get a deep dive on every one of those tools and strategies in my workshop, Be the Calm in Your Child's Storm, How to Keep Your Cool When Your Child Loses Theirs. To get instant access to this workshop, head over to Dr. Sarah Bren on Instagram and DM me the word calm or go to drsarahbren.com and click on the workshops tab. That's the word calm on Instagram or drsarahbren.com forward slash workshops. Thanks for listening and don't be a stranger.